This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast where the heroes and history of horse racing come alive. Last week, we talked with prolific author Mark Kramer about biking, hiking, and the sport of horse racing, its manifestations in the U.S. and Europe. It was time to get into some serious handicapping discussion, the different ways in which one might find value, having angles but not allowing oneself to be beholden to them, and having the courage to be honest with oneself. That perhaps being the most important angle of all. Uh, one of the joys of a small track, I don't know if you get these conditions or not in a place like Santa Anita or, or Belmont, but um, small tracks, they have races for non-winners of one race lifetime. And those are my favorite races to handicap because generally you get a lightly raced horse uh, uh, against horses that are proven yep. losers. Yep. And so I can walk into a, cla- a track where I, I, I don't know anything about it, but if I have that type of race, then there's... Um, there's a way to handicap it, and I have to give credit to James Quinn because the, in his original book, the Handicapper's Condition book, that was one of the uh, one of the methods that he used. Mm. I agree with the lightly raced ones in those conditions. I mean, yeah, if a horse has raced three times and only has one win versus a horse who has raced 29 times and has one win, mm-hmm. you know, you got to say that 29-timer generally uh, is, is probably not going to win this race, although... I will say, I, I will just add one kind of caveat to that, because um, I just had one this past Sunday. Now, if you forgive a little a success story, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Let's, let's hear this. i got to hear it. So this was a, this was a non-winners of two lifetime, and the horse had, uh, I think it was 29 starts, um, 23 starts, one win, one, uh, two seconds, and three thirds. Um, and like you, I would have almost automatically tossed the horse out, but... One of the things that caught my eye right away was that his last three races had been at Tampa, and uh, they were just complete non-efforts. And when I looked further down in the uh, past performances, he had three other races at Tampa that were complete, just non-efforts, not not nowhere near, you know, just 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 nowhere near the front at all. Um, so you know, here's my first thought: Well, the horse just doesn't like Tampa, right? This is at Gulfstream now. He's at Gulfstream now. Well, this horse just doesn't like Tampa, and then. So there's six races out of the 23 that I've thrown out. Um, I found six more where it was a wet track, and, and again, just complete non-efforts on a wet track. All right. Um, so now I'm down to 11 races. I'm looking at his, his record. Now he's got 11 races, one win, two seconds, and three-thirds. So mm-hmm. he's he's got my interest a little bit more. And then I see that there's a bunch of – this is like numbers of two lifetime, like I said, and it's the lowest level claiming. Um, there's a bunch of cheap speed in there that's going to go – you know, 47, 46 for four furlongs. Um, but this is a six-and-a-half furlong race, and they're not going to be there at the end. And he is, in those 11 races that I'm now isolated on, um, he's either 
coming from behind pretty stoutly, or he's just losing to horses who were were better. Um, so you know he really has my attention now because his best efforts in closing were at five and a half furlongs. He's he's up against cheap speed and they're going six and a half. So I'll just cut to the chase. He wins at nineteen to one. I I have him to win, and I hit a pick three, uh, which was pretty generous. But um, I, I think like anything in handicapping you can't get too tied into rules as well, right? You have to be able to look for anomalies. Uh, well, you know, uh, my friend Matt Packer and I call them cross-out plays. Um, it, it, and that really gets to the whole art of handicapping, right? There is no one way to handicap a race. I think there are so many different things that you have to juggle or kind of items in the toolbox you need to pull out. I think that's uh, what I call and what I've written about the, the – the spirit of the law, because uh, after uh, scratching out all the Tampa races and the sloppy races, this horse was not really uh, overly raced anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's that's a great point you're making, and I call that the spirit of the law. Really not, uh, if you're too uh, regimented about uh, rules, then you're going to miss these things. I agree with you completely. Well, and Mark, that brings up a good point about sometimes uh, <laughs> sometimes we are good handicappers, yet we underachieve at the at the betting windows, right? Whether it's the just the race didn't set up the way we thought, um, uh, you know. So, and I've consoled myself, tried to console myself many times with uh, the right bet, wrong outcome, right? Um, but that's it's hard to do when you're playing as a contrarian, right? It takes some some discipline, some mental discipline, and some mental toughness, I think. You know, there's no simple answer for this one, but uh, what I think is that uh, during periods when when uh, it, it, there's bad karma, mm-hmm. the idea would be to uh, retreat a little into what is your specialty and just play only the specialty races or retreat and, and uh, be especially rigorous about I don't mean rigorous about uh, about uh, being afraid to play a long shot, but rigorous in, in making demands. And I think the number one demand that I would say to separate playing a race or passing a race is asking yourself the question, have I discovered something? And if you don't think you've made a discovery in the race that really is unique, then that's that's a good reason to pass the race. It, it, actually, you and I talked earlier too about passing races, and you mentioned that you are you feel like you're one of the people that can you know watch a race and not feel like they have to bet on it. Um, and I think that's something you I think you're making a very good point. You have to learn as a handicapper, as a gambler, to just you don't have a good idea, you got to sit it out. But I I think you know I know that I have. Learn that less experience is the best teacher. Unfortunately, bad experience is the best teacher, right? Um, you 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 come to that conclusion via um, making some bad decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, this is. But but I was just listening. I've been getting into this uh, listening to physics physics podcast and uh, cosmologists and uh, uh, quantum mechanics. And what these people are all saying is that this is exactly what science is. Science is making mistakes 
and then hmm. learning from hmm. those mistakes. And so uh, no, uh, people who, you can't say, oh, I worship science. No, because scientists don't worship science, and they don't even worship each other. They, they, they fight with each other. I'm right, no, you're right, and, but they have to prove it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. making mistakes is actually uh, there, the experience that's a, that's a good um, argument in favor of experience, even if, it, even if you lose something during the experience. Mark, I think one of the ways that you helped uh, condition yourself, if you will, to taking that approach that I'm going to sit things out sometimes because I've, I've had this kind of testing results and I've seen what's happened. Um, you talk in one of your books about keeping a, a book of why. Do you, do you still do that? And, and can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I, I don't do it uh, formally, uh, but I always, in every single race, I ask, why am I playing this? And in every single race after it's over, I check whether my why was, was correct or not. I don't write it all down anymore. But uh, I, I, I believe that when you first start doing this, you should be rigorously keeping a notebook and giving your reasons and then going over that notebook every two weeks and say which of my whys were successful and which were not. And I think you you will you won't have to buy another handicap book for the rest of your life because this will be the best handicapping book that ever exists. Your own book of why. Yeah, of course you're asking for people. Self examination is hard, right? Um, and and uh, it, you know, learning you know really digging in and and being able to turn the focus around on yourself, I think is is different. I mean, look, I I struggle with it myself, and 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 you know, I think everybody does from time to time when it comes to, you know, this, this game is, um, how do you separate out, uh, good idea, bad outcome from bad idea <laughs> and, and, and a predictable outcome. Right. Um, but I, I, one of my contentions is that, um, if you've done this long enough, you, if you're honest with yourself, right. I think, you know, when you're making a good bet versus when you don't even if you don't get the right outcome. Would you agree with that? Well, <laughs> being honest with oneself is the prerequisite, and you have to be uh, brutal with, your, with yourself and make sure that you have to be a dictator uh, over yourself and make sure that you're being honest. Absolutely. There, there are two. Uh, Charles Bukowski mm. wrote this once, the poet. Yep. It, it, that, uh, the, uh, they, they asked him... Whether what's the best way to teach a person to become a writer? And he said, send them to the racetrack and make them bet five dollars on each race. <laughs> and what he was uh, what he was saying was that um, at the horse races, you cannot talk your way out of bad decisions. You can't talk your way, uh, rationalize that you're okay. And I love this about racing. This is the number one reason that I can argue for people that racing offers something that almost nothing else offers us, is that uh, we have no way to make excuses. Uh, We can't even falsify our books. And other professions, like let's say an economist makes a prediction and he's wrong, he still gets paid for it and he goes to work the next time. They still hire people, political pundits who are horribly wrong in the in the 2000s <laughs> and they're still going on CNN yep. today 
and and <laughs> and, and they're still getting paid for it. Whereas a horse player, uh, immediately when you're wrong, you do not get paid. And I think that's <laughs> yeah. a good argument for what we do. We're all familiar with public handicappers, those in the racing form, on track websites, and on the air who give out their picks, likely with the same degree of success as, again, being honest with oneself, we experience ourselves. But it's more fun to be critical of them than self-critical. Mark talked about his own experience as a public and private handicapper, the types of anomalies one can look for when handicapping, the dreaded fear factor, and how those experiences played out at the lamentably long-gone Hollywood Park. And, and speaking of records, you and I chatted a little bit, and I know you mentioned in one of your books <laughs> your experience being a, a public handicapper. And I've, I've learned enough about this game that um, when I see people kind of ripping the, the, um, the TVG personality, let's say, or the on-air personality at track, um, uh, being a public handicapper, I think, is a very difficult proposition. Um and, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to let you talk about your experiences at it because I think they were really uh, pretty pretty interesting. Well, first of all, I'd like to um, give credit to uh, my, my friend Nick Kling from uh, Albany, the Albany area. He was the public handicapper for Saratoga for the Albany Times Union. Okay. And Nick, uh, every single meet, he would let his readers know how he came out, whether if you were betting all his horses, what your flat bet profit or loss was. Mm -hmm. And very Mm -hmm. often he came out with a profit when the season was over. And so I think that uh, if you're a public handicapper, uh, this is, I'm missing this in France. We don't have public handicappers who, who show what their record is at the end of the season. So I give credit to Nick for this. And I followed that pattern, and I tried to. They used to have a uh, something called the Phillips Racing Newsletter, something sort of like that. And I had to monitor my picks. And it was strange because they, were, at the same time they were monitoring my picks, I was working for this tout, uh, giving him the same picks. And he was pissed off at me. I said, "Look, uh, Brian, his name was. Look, Brian, I, I, I got." Uh, got a flat bet profit this week. Uh, you should be thrilled. And he said, yeah, well, you're a big winner on Wednesday. What about the people that did not call on Wednesday? They didn't have him, so they lost money. And, and he wanted me to give him lower price horses and uh, even more winners, even if it wasn't a flat bet profit. And so, you know, uh, the, the psychology of this is, uh, I think as a public handicapper, you ha- cannot be fearful of being called a bum, because then you're not going to go with uh, good price horses, because they don't need somebody who's just going to give you the favorite. You can get that off the tote board. Right, right, right. You know, I do wonder sometimes with public handicappers um, how much of it is um, kind of fear-driven. Like you said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching you know, TVG or whatever, and, and the, you know, I really like the 8-to-5 horse. Well, you know, well, how'd you figure that one out? You know, um, let's, um, but I, I do wonder how much of it is that they don't want to appear foolish when that eight to five horse ends up romping like they, you know, probably should um, in that well, in that field. I haven't been following too too much of the public handicappers of late, but one thing that I never miss is the daily racing form 
uh, has these guys, uh, Dan Hillman, mm-hmm. there's a Mike Beer, Mike mm-hmm. Beer, yep. and there's another guy with them uh, whose name escapes me. I'm sorry. I apologize to that gentleman. Uh, and these guys analyze the Breeders' Cup races, and they do such a great job. And even if, if they end up not having the winner, but they educate and they show you the, the reason for, for why they're calling these people. They, so I don't consider them to be touts. Those people are really educators. I wouldn't miss that program. And um, so there, um, I, I don't know if they have a, a, a way of keeping record at the end of the meet of how they did, but they really provide a great service. No, that's, that's I think uh, Ken, maybe Kenny Peck is one of the people you're interested in. To think, it's, thinking it's about. possible. Yeah. I, I don't remember all the names now. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with you. I think that um, some of those DRF guys that write those, the, the narrative kind of descriptions of races make some, and you, your point is very good, they're really making some educational points about why you need to pay attention to this horse who might otherwise be overlooked. Um it's not all in the in in in, in the numbers. Um, so, Mark, I know you um, you know you obviously have been to many tracks all over the country. I think one of the ones that you remember very fondly, and a lot of people remember very fondly, oddly enough, for its location, which I found a little suspect, was uh, Hollywood Park. Was a place that you uh, liked quite a bit, right? Yeah. Well, uh, Hollywood Park was a hangout, and. Um, uh, even after they they butchered it with that uh, pavilion that they, they they put in there, Marge Everett's pavilion. Mm, yep. It was st- it was still a great place to be. There were a lot of people going every day. Uh, it was uh, uh, the, the the quality of the racing was good, and I just loved it. I had a uh, <laughs> I had a client at Hollywood Park. A guy found me there and he and he, he said I'll, i can i hire you as my as my as my tout and i and at first after having bad experiences with such a thing i told him uh, that i I'd, I'd really rather not he was going to pay me well mm-hmm. and he said i'll even i'll even put in bets for you and and finally he uh, my, my friend frank uh, who i used to go to the track frank Catolo, said, well, you're, you're crazy to not take this opportunity. So I took the opportunity. And uh, so there were, there were, just to show you how the betting psychology works and how you can't do well as a tout, uh, I, Frank and I came up with a horse called Woodcoat who was, was going to pay uh, 50 to 1, 46 to 1. And so Carson, the guy I, I was touting for, he would say, "You're, you're not going. You're not. You're not going to make me play that horse." He was playing big money. I was bet. I bet twenty and twenty on this horse. And for me, a forty-six to one horse betting twenty and twenty, that was good enough for me. Sure. And and Carson was saying, Carson who bet was betting two hundred or three hundred. You're not going to get. You're not going to force me to bet on that horse. And uh, he he refused to bet. He ended up playing the favorite. So we were there, Frank and I were there with him, Woodcoat won, and then Carson says, you better bury, bury me in ice. And his, his wife found out about that, and she kicked him out of the house. Uh, and uh, it was, so, it's the, now this, there's another lesson here, mm-hmm. that we could, we could afford betting 20, 20 and 20 on this horse. 
But he, betting 200 or 300, the fear factor entered in. Yeah. And it yeah. forced him and entered. But he was paying me. The way his wife said, you're paying the guy. At least you could. Listen, I, what I, Carson <laughs> could have put 20. He could have bet the favorite for 180 and saved 20 for this one horse. <laughs> still made money. And, yeah. Right. So, so I mean, you can't, you can't win when you're, when you're, when you're being a tout. There's no way you can win. Have a hunch, bet a bunch, right? Is one of the old sayings that. Um, of course, you have to have more than a hunch. I think you got <laughs> I'm sure you had some very good. I'm sure you had actually. Uh, uh, Woodcote is actually an interesting example. Uh, I've found that, um, and my friend Matt and I talk about this fairly frequently when we're talking about racing. Is that when you're betting a forty-six to one shot like a Woodcote, there are actually three or four, maybe even five things that line up. Um, that are are tells or indicators that you know this is a good bet that you are able to ferret out. If you've only got like one, maybe two, that's not as good of a read to lean on if you want to bet a forty six to one horse. So so tell me, like with Woodcote, am I right about that? Were there a number of things that lined up as far as you were concerned, or was it just a, a couple what? of things? Well, I think this goes back to to the horse that you you played on recently, uh, that that was nineteen to one that yeah. you won with. Uh, with Woodcote, he, he just had four or five consecutive races, all of which were either the wrong the wrong scenario uh, that he had no chance in those races at all. So you could just draw a line through all those races, and then he came came back to the to the uh, recent race where he had raced with the same jockey and. He'd done very well, and so uh, suddenly he was. Uh, it's the same logic you were using there, and I think that. Uh, so I'm not sure how many reasons you need uh, to convince, and and I don't really recall all the reasons mm-hmm. for Woodcote, but I do remember that he was making the right jockey switch, and he was uh, he was racing in the in the uh, a situation yeah. situational handicapping that he hadn't had uh, since his last good race. He's at the right level now. He's at the right distance. Uh, the jockey switch. Yeah, yeah. No, level, I, distance, yeah. surface, uh, yeah. track, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, it's it brings up an interesting point, uh, and I think it's, at least in the U.S., it's actually been exacerbated more the last few years. I find it amazing how many people are going by the last race, and, and, and that's the way the wagering is playing out. There are very... Uh, I, I see many more instances where the favorite is based on the last race as opposed to the body of work or, or you know, mm-hmm. other factors that might be involved. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I love those situations where I can tell the only reason why this horse is being bet is because of his or her last race, and there are many other reasons why, to your point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would think that... That now that you have uh, the racing forum uh, giving narrative information, uh, fewer people would be getting stuck on this last race uh, 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 syndrome. But uh, evidently, they're still doing it, huh? It feels like it. Um, You know, I'm not going to say it's in every situation, um, but um, uh, you know, it actually probably is more common with the you know the ones we're talking like the non-winners of one, right? Um, uh, You know. The, the maiden win, um, and then they're bet very heavily the next out. Now, it may be that uh, the one who is three races removed from their maiden win has reasons why that that you know they're a, they're a, a better bet. But um, 
I, I see that a lot, um, that the, the recent, especially recent maiden winner is going to be bet very heavily next time out, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, I know from, it, it's strange that uh, the, the the bike riding can give me an insight into the horse racing, but I know that when you go on a bike, there are certain days when you feel great and you feel strong, mm-hmm. and there are other days where you feel sluggish. And so you have to understand that a horse, uh, especially if he's racing in a situation that's not his best, that you have to be able to excuse a horse for a bad day. You know, that's a really that's a really interesting point because I, f- I, I try and think about that sometimes when you see a past performance line that just doesn't fit with the other things that you see. It may be just the horse wasn't feeling it that day, and and I think that's mm-hmm. the that may be the heart wrong distance wrong surface you know uh, class level jockey change those are things that are a little bit more um, you know you can kind of put a finger on and say there's a solid reason here but <laughs> I think the hardest one is to say to excuse the race by saying maybe he just wasn't feeling good that day um, and yeah and and then there are things that we don't we don't see like I I know being in stables with trainers and grooms and seeing them prepare horses and, and seeing all the details that are involved, that they can, they could also make a mistake on the day of a race, and, and, uh, and we wouldn't, nobody's ever going to know about it. So uh, if, you, if you have any reason to give a horse an excuse, then give them the excuse. Serendipitously, it all came back to bike riding, and I think my first podcast guest ever, Michael Blowen, would be glad to know Thoroughbred aftercare programs, a cause which, if you haven't embraced and supported it already, I strongly encourage you to do so. Help grow and strengthen the sport you love, and in your own way, in your own time, in your own fashion, do your own tour. Hey, uh, Michael, you, you mentioned uh, the, the bike riding a little bit, and you talked about your charity bike ride. You actually timed that up with the Tour de France also, correct? Yeah. Uh, what happened was that Thoroughbred Racing News, uh, Sue Finley is the, the editor, the publisher, publisher. and uh, uh, she she was the one that brought it up to my partner Alan Alan Kennedy, uh, my my cycling and racing uh, bet, race betting partner. Says, well, why don't you guys do a uh, do something for Thoroughbred Racing Foundation, Thoroughbred uh, Retirement Foundation, and so she's the one who came up with the idea of racing the same days as the Tour de France and finishing at the Arc de Triomphe when the, when the tour riders finished at the Arc de Triomphe. So uh, it, we hadn't even thought of 1,000 kilometers. For us, 200 kilometers would have been enough, but uh, <laughs> she said, man, do 1,000. Now, in the same period of time, just to show you how bad we are, <laughs> in the same period of time, the Tour de France riders did nearly 4,000 kilometers, and Alan and I, we did 1,000 kilometers. They finished their day with maybe four or five hours, and sometimes we were riding for, for seven or eight hours. <laughs> so we were riding longer time and getting a shorter distance. But there we were at the Arc de Triomphe uh, celebrating, <laughs> celebrating that we finished the race. You know, I, it, was, uh, it was pretty good. And, and we got to see a lot of wonderful racetracks. And oh, sure. there was one occasion where, where the, the, the um, post-race uh, announcer had us bring our bikes up, up to the pedestal where the uh, where the, the the winning jockey and winning owner oh, were uh, receiving their prize, That's and he announced great. them on the PA system. So it was a great experience, and and uh, and it just combines 
so many things that I love into into one into one one event, a long event. You know the uh, the Tour de France is one of my wife's and I's favorite things to watch every year because the television coverage of it is just uh, spectacular, and Isn't we've always it? talked about you know wanting to be there for it. I imagine you have actually gone to the the roots on tour days, and of course you know the the peloton and everyone's gone by in two or three minutes. But I have a strong suspicion that's not what the experience is really about, right? It's about the entire day, I would think, right? Well, it's the entire day. The peloton goes by very quick. If you're, uh, the idea would be to go to a high place mm-hmm. where you can look down on them and so so see it, see it progressing. Or if you if you go uh, the last day at at uh, Champs Elysees, uh, then they go around eight times. Right. So you so you see much more of it. Uh, or if you're going at a place where they're coming uphill, then they're going slower and they're more spread out, so you get to see. Uh, get to see more of the uh, more of the race. But what I would like to suggest is that no matter for your listeners, mm-hmm. no matter what your age is, I'm 75 years old, and I still go out for long distance bike rides. And I started doing this when I was 55, mm-hmm. uh, 20 20 years ago, and I I had no idea that I could even go three miles at that time. So what I'm saying is that you can do your own Tour de France. The Tour de France is wonderful to watch. The photography is great. The spectacle is just amazing. But it also could be an inspiration for some of you to do your own Tour de France, even if it's in your own neighborhood. And, uh, and, and this is the philosophy behind my book is precisely that uh, we can all live our own Tour de France. We can all uh, use our own human energy. We get healthier for it. Uh, it makes life exciting, and um, it's something that's doable. So let's not think of the Tour de France, these superhuman athletes that are, that are like Greek gods or, or, or Roman, god, Roman gods. These, these, are, these are just an example of what, what we can do with our own lives at a, um, at a more uh, haiku-style uh, uh, which will be just as satisfying to us. And in fact, think about it. These guys in the Tour de France don't even get a chance to admire all the beautiful countryside. They're going by too fast. So we, we can go by slower. We can stop when there's a beautiful place. We can stop in the middle and admire and take out a camera and take pictures, etc. Have a glass of wine and, yeah. yeah no. Absolutely. Yeah. Stop for a beer. We can stop for a beer and then continue. That's great. I hope that through this discussion you got a good sense for what a thoughtful, engaging person Mark is. I encourage you to pick up any one of his books, handicapping or otherwise. You'll enjoy a random walk or ride through an interesting array of ideas and musings. And as Mark said, you can experience at least some of it for free. People who are listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. all they have to do is Amazon.com and look for Old Man on a Green Bike, Mark Kramer, and you can read the introduction for free, just where it says, look inside, click. Look inside, read the introduction, and if it doesn't make you laugh, then you get the money that you didn't spend, you get it back. <laughs> okay? It was a, no, it was, and it, actually, it's a good point. It was a very enjoyable read. Um, you, you have a nice um, conversational way, I would say, of writing and relating to people in a very kind of common sense way, too, um, uh, that's very, very enjoyable to read. And just, uh, uh, I don't want to call it light because that's going to, 
give the wrong impression, but um, you know, I, I think you do a good job of conveying philosophical points in a non-demanding way. Let's put it that way. Well, so, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate your your saying it in that way. That, that that's. Uh, I, I hope that other people will see it that way too. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back next week with another look at the heroes and history of horse racing. In the meantime, God bless you, your family, and loved ones, and make it a great week. I'm making Valentine's with on the morning line. The guy has got him bigger than five to nine. But make it epitaph. He wins it by a half. But can't do this here in the telegraph. For Bora Bear, I'll fight. I hear his foot's all right. I've lost it all. The horse is red like.